Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ideas. This is Greg Soden. If you pay attention to any type of news around wellness, you have undoubtedly heard about the concept of mindfulness and meditation. You may also notice there is often a very casual nod to the Buddhist traditions from which these ideas stem, but there might also be no mention of Buddhism whatsoever. The secularization of Buddhist traditions is a source of contention around the world right now as Buddhist methods and practices make their way into other realms of society normally not often associated with religious practices. For example, Buddhist applications have been reported being used in corporate settings, the U.S. military, university health centers, and the topic of today's conversation, psychotherapy. Psychotherapists relate to Buddhist traditions in different ways, as reported in the first comprehensive study on the topic from psychotherapist and Buddhist studies scholar Dr. Ira Helderman. His book, Prescribing the Dharma, Psychotherapists, Buddhist Traditions, and Defining Religion, gives direct voice to psychotherapists themselves to describe how they see what it means for a method to be religious or not religious, how they navigate the boundaries and seek to be transparent in identifying the origin of their methods with people who come to them who may not be Buddhist, and also how they understand categories of religion and science. This book sets the stage for future decades of psychotherapy research, and you can get it from the University of North Carolina Press at the link in the show notes. As always, if you like this show, you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast or on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Dr. Ira Helderman is a psychotherapist in private practice and he holds a PhD in religious studies. Without further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Ira Helderman. much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Well, my name is uh, Dr. Ira Helderman. I uh, am a um, religious studies scholar and a practicing psychotherapist uh, living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I also do some teaching. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at uh, Vanderbilt University's um, graduate program for, for counselors. 
Uh, and um, I, m this most recent project, I think that you and I will be talking about, um, is about the way that psychotherapists have approached uh, Buddhist traditions. Uh, but my uh, research and writing as a whole looks at how psychotherapists and psychotherapeutic stuff influence the way people are religious in the United States. Wonderful. Um, so I always like to get a little bit of background on the guests, just like a little bit. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you became a psychotherapist and maybe what some of your critical turning points were along your path? Yeah, absolutely. So the you know uh, there is a a longer version, but the but the short version is that I was doing volunteer. I was doing service work for uh, an addictions treatment center uh, here in Nashville, um, and uh, you know I you know was was doing that as service work, and somebody spoke to me uh, one time. I was there and said. Hey, have you have you ever thought about you know doing this for for money? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was working with uh, adolescents um, in their adolescent program. This was two thousand one, so I don't know what you were doing uh, in in two thousand one. But uh, I uh, I said yeah, I, I could give that a try, having never really thought about doing that kind of work before. And it was pretty shortly after starting. Uh, you know, starting to work there that I realized, oh, this is what I am supposed to do. And then, you know, I, you know, made the decision that uh, more than kind of continuing what I was doing there, which was essentially what's referred to as a tech, but, um, but what I found working in a lot of inpatient environments is that the, the techs do a fair bit of the actual counseling mm -hmm. and talk therapy. Uh, and, you know, rather than kind of continuing to do on that path, I thought to myself, I think, you know, again, this is what I'm really supposed to do. And so I, I went back for uh, a uh, master's in counseling. And, uh, and I guess another critical turning point would be the turn towards uh, religious studies. I was uh, some years later working for a university counseling center for Vanderbilt University's uh, counseling center uh, and uh, knew that I was uh, was ready to kind of give private practice a try and at the same time had gotten really interested in uh, uh, religious studies and and the topic we're going to talk more about in particular and so I, I took up in, in 2009 uh, a PhD program a whole new degree uh, in religion, psychology, and culture. Uh, and, uh, that, that path ultimately, I think essentially led me to talk to you. So, and I, I, maybe I'll tell you, say, say more about that piece of the story, uh, in a bit. Fantastic. Okay. So, um, one of the things that really struck me is that as I was reading the introduction and the acknowledgements to your book are some familiar names that I know as well. So like Pierce Salguero and Anne Gleig, and Anne was on this show, and I've noticed that they're both super influential scholars for you. So as an outside observer to religious studies, I'm finding that the field is actually pretty small and that everybody knows each other. Um, who are some of your biggest influences in the religious studies field? Yeah, and, you know, I heard your uh, uh, interview with Anne. I thought it was uh, fantastic. And, you know, both Anne and Pierce are... are um, influences on me and they've been really helpful and encouraging in, in, in my work and I also consider them friends they're really you know great people and um, and you know there's a reason why all three of us know each other which is that we're, we're definitely we're definitely overlap working in overlapping fields uh, you know 
maybe I'll mention a couple of people that uh, that are, are not maybe immediate uh, influence, like immediate people that might jump out to somebody that kind of knows the field of Buddhist studies, or in the case of uh, of Pierce, religion and medicine, and uh, Pierce uh, works on uh, uh, Buddhist traditions and, and medicine and healings. I guess would be the short uh, way of saying it. So one scholar who I, I've um, barely spoken to, Anna Pierce, I, I've had many conversations with, is a, is a, is a guy named Brent Nongbri. Um, and maybe I'm thinking maybe you can put his name in the show notes or something or I could spell it. Oh, for sure. Uh, no, I can do it. Cool. So he wrote a book called uh, uh, Before Religion, which is, uh, to me, one of the more reader friendly uh, introductions to what is a core piece of my book, uh, it's, which is the, the uh, idea that, or the, or, or the history of the concept of religion, which is a relatively new concept in human history. It's only a, a couple hundred years old. And, you know, uh, before um, some people date it to the Reformation, what we call the European Reformation. Some people date it to what we call the European Enlightenment. Before that uh, point, uh, the humans didn't walk around thinking of the world as divided up into religious and not religious spheres of life. There was just the universe, which um, which ran based on you know if you were living, if you were a Protestant in, in Europe, it was it was based on God's law, uh, and so. Um, you know, my book very much is influenced by that, what was for me a revelation as a practicing therapist going, getting into religious studies, which, but, you know, even though that for religious studies scholars is kind of old news, and it totally shaped the way that I uh, approached uh, my work. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll name one other scholar who's been also, uh, um, or two other scholars that have also been really uh, supportive to me, just because um, I feel like I can't uh, not name them. <laughs> One is, is David McMahon, uh, who is also in the Buddhist studies world uh, and wrote a um, uh, really central, I think you talked about him with Anne, the, the making of, of Buddhist modernism. Uh, he was kind enough to actually be the outside reader on my, on my dissertation committee. Nice. And then a woman named Anne Harrington, who uh, wrote a um, book called The Cure Within, which is a history of mind-body medicine. And she teaches at, um, at Harvard and, and does history of science. And, and, and um, historical methodologies is, is, is um, one of the main uh, uh, methodologies of the, of the book. And, I, and she's been uh, really helpful and and and. Um, open up a lot of, uh, of intellectual doors for me. That is so cool. I'm actually, I'm writing down some of these titles as well because you're <laughs> giving me a whole bunch of things that I can jump off of and go from here. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So let's dive in a little bit to your brand new book, Prescribing the Dharma, Psychotherapists, Buddhist Traditions, and Defining Religion, which is out now from the University of North Carolina Press. So I love University of North Carolina Press, by the way. I've had several authors from them on the Me show. And it's always great. They're so kind and helpful and supportive. Um, so this book, in the book, it says this is the first comprehensive work of religious studies scholarship to elucidate the diversity of ways psychotherapists in the U.S. have related to Buddhist teachings and practices. How long was this book in the works for you? So 
it depends on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, before religious studies scholarship was ever kind of uh, a twinkle in my eye, I was a you know practicing therapist uh, who got introduced to um, Buddhist teachings and practices, or, or certainly what I was told were um, Buddhist teachings and practices or, or, or derived from them. And, um, you know, was finding them to be helpful uh, for the people that were coming to see me for therapy. And that, uh, you know, led me to do study of, uh, of this topic. But, you know, most of the books that are out there on this topic still, and certainly then, were books that were written by psychotherapists for other psychotherapists. And so, um, you know, the, it's varying how much clinical practice focused uh, versus kind of theory, kind of a, uh, there's a dichotomy there, uh, theory practice, uh, maybe a false one, but, you know, different different books would sort of uh, vary in, in, in their approaches, but they were, again, for the most part, were written by therapists for other therapists. Mm -hmm. They usually were, you know, they were often edited collections and they usually had a selection from a scholar or historian. And I always found those chapters really interesting. So, you know, cut to 2009, like I mentioned, uh, or, or 2007, eight. And when I, um, uh, was speaking to the, 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 the man that became my uh, first reader on my dissertation, Volney Gay, who is uh, a psychologist of religion at Vanderbilt. That means that he interprets religion using psychology, specifically using psychoanalysis. So he'll explain why somebody believes in God or the, or the God image they have using psychoanalysis. Uh, and it was it was really through conversations with Volney that I, I made the decision to to give uh, to take up religious studies scholarship and get in, in, a, in a full way of, of um, working towards another uh, degree, nice. uh, the, the PhD. Yeah, cool. Uh, and that ultimately led to um, this particular project. Awesome. Um, so as a former PhD student myself, I didn't actually finish, but I took methods courses, so I know enough to be dangerous. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about the uh, the methodology that you used for the study. So it's primarily a historical uh, um, literature analysis. So the, the, the primary methodology of the book is um, combing through the, the texts that uh, therapists have written and religious studies scholars and, historian, and historians have written about psychotherapists. Uh, in particular, I also, you know, was using uh, literature from Buddhist studies field. I, 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 uh, I did a, a minor uh, in looking at the uh, medieval China and, you know, the communities that we would call Buddhists, interactions with the communities we would today call Taoists. Um, I, I did that minor because um, many people kind of compare what's going on today in the U.S. to previous times in history when Buddhist traditions were introduced to new communities, and in particular, medieval China when they're uh, coming up from, from India. Uh, but, that, that, you know, historical and, and, and literature study was not the only methodology I used. I also uh, used uh, or borrowed, I, I should, as the way I like to put it, <laughs> some methodologies from uh, uh, sociology of religion, anthropology of religion. And so I did 
um, uh, ex what I call expert interviews with uh, therapists, published therapists whose work I was reading um, and we're still, and we're still alive to be able to be, for me to be able to interview them. So someone like Eric Fromm, I couldn't ask, you know, when you're using religion here, it seems like you're using that word in this way, but over here, it seems like you're using it to mean this, but, uh, somebody like, um, Barry Magid, I, I, I could ask that question too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also w w am, am hopeful that they could be sort of not just representative of different approaches, but we might think of them as influencers. Uh, they are prominent and published and speakers. And so I thought to myself, we may be able to tell something about the way wider communities of therapists approach Buddhist traditions based on um, some of these these um, influencers. Uh, I also did some, um, what they call participant ob observation, which meant I, you know, I, I already kind of had this status of being a therapist myself. I was already what they call an ins insider to a certain extent, but I, I did some more formal participant observation of continuing education conferences. So conferences where therapists go to learn about how, um, different approaches to uh, Buddhist traditions. And so I did, you know, t uh, um, um, uh, did some observation there. Also thinking to myself, this might, again, tell us more about how these same therapists that I was focused on who were published and who were speaking at these conferences, how they might be influencing wider communities of therapists. Um, so something I'm curious about. So I'm a I'm a teacher, just a high school teacher, and so I'm obviously not a psychotherapist, and I'm not a Buddhist studies scholar. Uh, but I really enjoyed the book. Who do you hope will like connect as the audience for this book? Like, who are you writing to? Do you think? It's so cool to 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 just hear that question and to hear that you came upon it and that you found it um, to be interesting and um, and. You know, the the hope is is that um, the book will connect with as 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 wide an audience uh, as as possible. It is written specifically first kind of on a first level to religious study scholars, mm -hmm. uh, to religious study scholars of, um, of of a, of a really wide diversity because the book you know, obviously, uh, exists at, um, kind of the intersection of multiple disciplines, religion and medicine, religion and science, Buddhist studies, uh, primarily, um, my, you know, my, my degrees in religion and psychology, religion, psychology, and culture. Um, but so, so multiple kinds of spheres of, um, or, or, or segments of religious studies scholars, I also, you know, uh, am, am certainly hopeful, and it seems like it is connecting with practicing uh, psychotherapists um, and uh, Buddhist practitioners and uh, communities of, um, of, you know, committed uh, and or casual uh, Buddhist practitioners. You know, that's super interesting because something that I've been trying to follow the last few years is a little bit about the research on like what universities are doing to like study things like the effects of meditation on the brain and how are these techniques being used in like a secular context and Anne Gleig's book does a really amazing job about talking about the arguments that uh, the secular and the religious communities are having over using these techniques in different ways and so you know I was reading this book and I'm curious for your perspective on this as a psychotherapist I was reading page one and I thought to myself what do we know for sure about treating depression with meditation? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
So, you know, I, I always hesitate at this point because as a practitioner, yeah. um, you know, uh, my job is to be a, as what they call a consumer, great word of, you know, scientific research on, um, you know, things like dep- depression in general and, yeah. and meditate, the effectiveness of meditation. Uh, you know, I, uh, that is less my focus as as a scholar is the kind of scientific research uh, out there, except for as a cultural and historical, you know, a cultural and intellectual historian of that research. So, so I always hesitate to speak to uh, the the question of is meditation actually effective right, uh, right. For, for depression. Uh, it, it is it, there is a vibrant debate on that question. However, there is. What I can say is that there is a lot of research out there that um, is presented as uh, indicating that meditation can be uh, uh, very helpful for people with depression. It, you know, there was a whole treatment modality born out of the um, idea that uh, meditation practices could be helpful for depression relapse. Mm. So, you know, uh, what I always encourage uh, my students in counseling is to is to be aware of that research, but also to be always looking at it with a critical eye, because there's also research out there um, prominently just, you know, to, to put to, you know, you can name mindfulness based cognitive therapy uh, and the researchers there and to name a researcher on another side, um, although I would. Maybe I shouldn't make a, a false dichotomy of them, but a woman named uh, Willoughby Britton has also reported on um, on the research that shows that meditation can sometimes uh, deepen depression in mm. some cases. And so, you know, what I believe is that um, the research is helpful. We always want to look at it with a critical eye and to be actively engaged with what it does and does not tell us because um, it, it, it certainly gives us information and then there's limits to the information it gives. And one of the big limits to me is uh, that I think it's, 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 it's uh, rarely helpful to say uh, one must do this with all people at all times based on these studies. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so from the book, I also gather that psychotherapists in the field are like receptive to different techniques and they're comfortable to varying degrees, like depending on the therapist, of course, um, and using these Buddhist techniques in their practices. So like, is there a spectrum of comfort from like explicitly Buddhist, um, and owning that like in sessions to like presenting something that has Buddhist origins as like entirely secular? That is the, uh, one of the main aims of the book. Awesome. Okay. (laughs) Is to, is to, you know, one of the difficult when I started doing um, reading and, and combing through, looking at the research that did exist out there on this topic, uh, or you know related topics, what I found was that uh, a lot of commentary, um, whether from religious study scholars or just or, or just cultural commentators out there, seemed to say um, therapists are secularizing Buddhist traditions or. Uh, at a certain point later on, would push back on those uh, those interpretations and say, well, actually, no, what's really happening here is, quote unquote, the spread of the Dharma. This is really religious transmission. And um, and, and and there are a lot of, of, of uh, 
levels to those arguments uh, that we could talk more about at, at some point. But but what I knew as a practitioner before I ever did any um, any research was that people that were saying this is the secularization of Buddhism, uh, I put that in quotes, um, obviously didn't know the therapist that I knew <laughs> just, you know, at, you know, uh, from down the street, so to speak, who, uh, were, you know, were deep believing, uh, considered themselves to be deep believing Buddhists and would actually talk about Buddhist doctrine in sessions and, and vice versa. The people that were saying this is religious transmission, obviously, you know, weren't taking therapists at their word when they said, we are secularizing this. This is secular, and 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 didn't kind of weren't th thinking to the uh, the educator or trainer out there who were teaching people in something like a, you know the very popular mindfulness practices uh, without themselves knowing anything about their Buddhist origins. And so we're having generations of people being taught this thing um, without any sort of connection to. To, uh, to, to, to Buddhist traditions or the concept of religion. So, you know, the, the book does history. It does uh, what's called ethnography. That's the, the, um, some of those anthrop anthropological and sociological study of religion approaches I was mentioning earlier. But what I really think of it as uh, is as a typology. And each chapter of the book presents a different set of approaches that therapists have taken to Buddhist traditions to try to give us a full sense of the, of the real diversity of ways that therapists uh, have approached Buddhist traditions throughout history. So in the book, you outline six approaches that therapists have taken to Buddhist traditions within therapy. Can you give a brief overview for the listener to make these distinctions clear? Yes. Now, to do so, I have to go back to... Uh, before religion, which is the, the, the title of that book that I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, that speaks to this whole body of scholarship that uh, informs us of how the concept of religion, uh, as different from other spheres of life that are not religious, is a relatively new and recent uh, concept. And so when that was a revelation to me when I started getting into religious studies scholarship, even though it was uh, is, is old news, I think, to, to religious studies scholars. But to me, I, I said this should should shape the way that we talk about this topic. It should it should totally transform whether we are when we make a definitive statement, this is religion or this is uh, secular in, in, in one way or another. And for me, the way that I wanted it to inform what I did was, well, what we should do is look at what the communities themselves are saying about what is and is not religious. And then we can learn more about the way these concepts actually function in people's lives and, and work on the ground. Uh, and, and so what I found when I started doing that was that psychotherapists had a diversity of uh, definitions, or at least they, they, they uh, expressed a, a diversity of definitions of the religious and not religious and uh, put them often into kind of uh, debate and, and contestation with each other. And that uh, therapist's understandings of what is and is not religious actually generated or, uh, or certainly helped mold the approaches that they took to 
Buddhist traditions. And so, you know, uh, some communities of therapists, some therapists are extremely invested in being defined as not religious uh, practitioners. And if, if they are, they're going to take certain kinds of approaches to Buddhist traditions, while other therapists are uh, not only unperturbed by the idea that they might be considered a, a Buddhist uh, therapist. They actually uh, say that they're practicing uh, Buddhist psychotherapy. And so they, they, they would take a different kind of approach. And so each of the chapters kind of maps out a different set of approaches. Uh, you know, the categories are, are uh, uh, artificial, but uh, they hopefully kind of give us a sense of the texture, give us a sense of the diversity that is out there as, again, shaped by therapists' understandings uh, of what is and is not religious. Fantastic. So the first one is therapized. I call therapized religion approaches. So um, as I say, each 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 set of approaches uh, is therapists approaching uh, what they consider to be religion in a particular way. Uh, whether someone else would consider it to be religion or not is, is less important. So at least for, for this book. <laughs> and so uh, there are, uh, there are uh, uh, psychotherapists out there that will approach Buddhist traditions uh, as using the filter of psychotherapeutic ideas and concepts uh, evaluating Buddhist traditions based on how psychotherapeutically useful they might be, whether it's psycho, whether a particular Buddhist idea is uh, is psychotherapeutically healthy or not. And so, rather than psychology of religion, I thought to myself, this is kind of therapizing religion. Mm. Uh, the second approach is filtering religion approaches and. Uh, filtering religion approaches are where you have therapists taking up science and scientific research and kind of filtering, using that scientific research to try to filter the religious materials kind of away out of particular Buddhist ideas or practices. So they'll say, you have this practice here, and it may have come from a religious tra tra tradition, but we now have this science, and when we when we apply these scientific studies to it, we can generate something that is uh, no longer religious. And so, so they're kind of filtering the religion out of it, or, and another kind of meaning of it, they view science as kind of being able to create, to, to find the essence of, uh, of a religious tradition, Buddhist traditions. And so uh, what's left from filter, you know, the, the filtering process would be kind of like the essential core of that religious tradition. So a kind of filtered coffee, uh, as you will. Gotcha, and, yeah. Um, the third is uh, translating religious approaches. And this, uh, these kinds of approaches is what we're most uh, familiar with, I feel like, is the most popular because mindfulness-based mindfulness practices, uh, I view as, coming, uh, as, as just a really prominent example of translating religion uh, approaches. And here, a therapist uh, takes up a uh, practice or teaching that they view to be religious, and they translate it into uh, not religious terms, um, medical, scientific um, uh, terms. The fourth are personalizing religion approaches, and personalizing religion approaches are uh, where you have therapists 
who are in their uh, quote unquote personal lives, sometimes uh, not just deep believing Buddhist practitioners, but can even be Buddhist teachers, uh, founders of Buddhist communities, but they don't ever actually talk about any of that in their therapy sessions. In their therapy sessions themselves, if you were listening to them and didn't know what you might be, might listen for, you would not know that session to be any different from any other uh, uh, therapist sessions. Uh, however, those those therapists who in their personal lives are are are, are Buddhists, that what they'll say often is that. It's not like that's not in the room with them. It's just held in what uh, therapists refer to as the person of the therapist. They're kind of holding it internally and silently in their person, and thus it is uh, personalized. The fifth uh, approach I, I just call adopting religion, and I'll say that all of these uh, phrases I try to draw from the, the titles of the different approaches. I tried to draw from the language of the therapist I was listening to yeah, yeah. And, and, and reading, but none of them do I love so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, all of these categories are, are artificial. In any case, adopting religion is where you have therapists who full on will kind of adopt Buddhist traditions in some cases as the bases for their therapies. And so they'll e even refer to their therapy as a Buddhist psychotherapist or, or uh, psychotherapy or a Zen psychoanalysis. There are more kinds of ways that therapists ad adopt uh, religion than just that. But for, for our for time's sake, I'll just uh, uh, name that one. And then the final one is uh, I call integrating religion approaches. And, and here, I mean, to a certain extent, you, you know, one could argue all of these are, you know, integrating uh, approaches. But uh, what I'm trying to highlight are approaches uh, that where the practitioners believe that they are integrating Buddhist and psychotherapeutic frames in such a way that both are still recognizable. Uh, that is a, a, a mixture between the two um, where one is not necessarily subsumed within the other. Interesting. Okay, so all these expert interviews that you did, I'm kind of curious about these. So did any of the psychotherapists you spoke to for these interviews tell you about choosing or not choosing to use Buddhist-oriented or inspired techniques on someone in their office for therapy who was like outwardly like a devout practitioner of another religion like for example if somebody comes into their office and they are obviously like an orthodox jewish person or they are obviously muslim do any of these therapists have any qualms with using these buddhist inspired techniques on somebody who is you know devout from another faith or religious tradition well first of all i i have to to note some personal history here which is sure. that a big piece of a big, a big driver of my interest came out of an experience um, in this topic. Came again, way, you know, uh, you know, at least a year or three before I would have ever thought of doing this. Uh, when I was giving, just as a, as a therapist, giving a presentation to a pastoral counseling center uh, on um, the use of mindfulness-based practices um, in, um, in in therapy, and I thought to myself. Oh, this is a pastoral counseling center, and uh, these are—it's—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's, it's ecumenical. Um, but that itself is a, is a you know Christian word, and they're mostly going to be you know uh, Christian practitioners. I should be sort of aware, and I should speak to 
this exact question that you that you're uh, bringing up. Yeah, but it's I, just interesting. Yeah, yeah, and you know, but and so I prepared like a whole segment of the of the training on it, and then found that they really didn't seem to have this question. Did <laughs> uh, did not really have concern about this, which I thought was very uh, was really interesting, and it, and it, it might have just been that crowd, but. It, it remains a question that's uh, really interesting to me and is very much a debated topic um, amongst uh, people, certainly amongst people that are writing and like theorizing uh, on this topic. And so what I'll say is that uh, the, the, the short answer is yes. There mm. are uh, certainly therapists out there that are concerned about how um, how tradition uh, traditions teachings and practices that they may think of as buddhist can or should be introduced to uh people who identify from a different religious um tradition you know uh and so th there's again there's there's a a, a a really active debate about that there are some people who very strongly believe that one shouldn't be using even those practices that uh, therapists consider to be secularized versions of Buddhist practices, you have people um, uh, who strongly state, uh, no, it's still uh, carrying with it that Buddhist past, and you are still um, either violating the uh, quote-unquote secularity of the space, or um, in, in one way or another, this is this is something that shouldn't be done, and so I think that this is a question that, that we definitely want to be thinking more and talking more about. But this is what this is the 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 the, the twist that I can and I thought a lot about the, the concept of informed consent here, and um, I'm actually going to be having um, uh, an article coming out on that soon. Awesome on, on these questions. Uh, the, the, the this is just the one piece I don't feel like I hear people mention often that I feel like I want to try to 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 put it out there to complicate this debate. And that is psychotherapy as a whole and the practices that make up psychotherapy can be traced back to multiple other traditions, uh, Protestant traditions, you know, you know uh, uh, the founder of talk therapy as we know it was a uh, Jew living in, in a uh, anti-Jewish <laughs> world <laughs> yeah. of uh, uh, Austria and and you know the practices that he were taking, he was taking up and influenced by were, were influenced by things we call mesmerism today. And uh, he was thinking about ambient energies to, or influenced by ideas of ambient energies and so on. And so, you know, um, I had a, a colleague in my PhD program wrote his dissertation on the talking cure and confession and the relationship between you know between. Uh, the, you know, these different kinds of practices. And so all that to say that it's, it's just really complicated. One of my big messages is always, it's complicated. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, it's, when somebody introduces a, uh, the, you know, the, the talking cure, and they say, just speak stream of consciousness, um, they could say, you know, this has its roots in, uh, in Catholic confession before they did that. Uh, most do not. Gotcha. So, um, you know, with this wide variety and this spectrum of techniques that therapists are okay with, I'm also curious about the 
observant Buddhist leaders in the world. So I'm curious if there's been any pushback on the secularization of these techniques, because um, you write that a concrete understanding um, to define activities as religious, scientific, or secular will always be stymied because of these terms um, to remain in constant flux, depending on how they are used. So is the line between secular and religious even like real at this point? How do the like um, people who take the secularization debate seriously, what are their thoughts on all this? Well, what I would say is um, it is both very, very real uh, and imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the imaginary part of the um, of uh, the the lines between uh, the religious and not religious that we all live with live with um, make the very hard lines between religious and not religious subvertible. So let me let me um, uh, actually I don't know if subvertible is a word, but uh, <laughs> but um, let me so let me explain what I mean by this. So so first of all, th- there is a lot of pushback on the secularization of these techniques. There's a whole host of uh, of critiques about the um, quote unquote secularization of, of of Buddhist traditions, and and again, and there's there's a, a very active and, and lively uh, debate about it as as well that I'm hoping that I can speak to. And one of the ways I want to speak to it is say is to say again, if we think of these terms as uh, invented. Terms. If it's a very recent thing that human beings have thought of, this sphere of life over here is religious, and this sphere of life over here is not religious. Shouldn't that change the way we talk about it at least? Um, and then from there we can say, like, well, how should it change it? But uh, I feel like we're still at the first step on that. And <laughs> now, what what I found in the conclusion of my book lays out uh, six. Uh, uh, findings that are all related to just this, you know, not just this topic, but I'll go to what we can say about the religious and not religious using uh, psychotherapist approaches to Buddhist traditions as a case study. And, you know, one of the first things, and it's not the first one of, of the findings that's listed here, but one of the first things we have to say is that, you know, these terms may be invented, but they have very, very real consequences in people's lives. And um, it may be an, an imaginary idea that um, this sphere of life over here is religious and this is not, but it, 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 you know, it, it can have um, major impacts on the way that a therapist will inf- um, uh, help somebody and, and when they will and will not introduce something to suffering people. And, you know, some people, you, you asked, is the line between uh, secular and religious even real at this point? One of the findings uh, in that conclusion all goes to the fact that I would regularly hear from the, the therapists that I interviewed. Um, they had heard this this uh, historical or at least heard something about this history that, you know, th- these are concepts. Um, and so I would, I would hear people say, like, well, you know, religion and secular are just concepts. Like, I don't even think in terms of them. But what I found is that they still were acting <laughs> as if they thought about them. Their choices were still shaped by them. And, you know, we can't just, um, whether we want to or not, we can't just dismiss them, you know, um, uh, whether we whether we'd like to or not. You know, there's, um, 
there are people being sued um, for using uh, mindfulness practices in, in public schools. And so by extension, uh, th- 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 those same lawsuits could apply to their use in, in public hospitals, potentially. Yeah. Well, something that, I, that a quote that just jumps out at me from what you just said is um, on page 19, you write, In keeping with legal statutes of a publicly funded state institution, a clinician will radically transform a Buddhist practice to make it verifiable to scientific authorities. So, like, what I'm thinking about is, like, if this were drawn from, like, a monotheistic religion, I could see people who were not observant of monotheistic traditions looking twice at this line and, like, being alarmed. Um, How would you explain to this to, to like a patient in your own practice? Like, do you explain to a patient every time that you do something that is like inspired by Buddhism? Does that make sense? Well, I think that if I'm understanding your correct, your, your question correctly, um, I think this goes back to what I was saying a little while ago. Every time that somebody, I mean, it, it, it may be rarer and rarer that a therapist asks it, <laughs> actually asks someone that's coming to see them for therapy to, uh, to speak stream of consciousness. But every time they did that, they might want to say, you know, there's an argument that this has roots in Catholic uh, confession. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's, it's really complicated. It's really complicated is, is one of my big uh, messages. And, you know, what I ask is how many generations does it take um, before we forget that psychotherapy, um, was influenced by mesmerism, mm. um, that, you know, talk therapy, uh, happens every day, uh, um, here in, in the U S and, you know, I just don't think many of the practicing therapists are thinking about ambient energies or so on. You know, the, the metaphor I use in the book is a Christmas tree. I say, you know, it's many people know that the Christmas tree um, is, um, you know, derived from uh, what we call Roman, tra- you, know, you know, Roman traditions today. Sure. Um, uh, um, and, you know, but but today it is it is definitely part of Christian practice. And so, uh, you know, how many generations does it, does it take? Bef- did, did it take before the Christmas tree becomes, you know, authentically uh, Christian, even as we still are talking about it, right? And so it still has that, you know, that conversation to it. And, you know, the, the joke I use is if a Christmas tree falls into a forest and <laughs> no one's there to, for the historian to tell the tale, does, does, it, does it make a sound? Um, there's much more to be said about this. Can I say one more piece, which is just that all of this means that, you know, a state-funded hospital um, can still be the, the, the lines that the hospital authorities, the, the, the human beings that run that hospital are, are drawing or may not draw between what's religious and not, those lines can be subverted mm. uh, beca- and precisely because these terms and these concepts uh, remain in flux. Is it hard to deal with insurance companies when a therapist does something that is inspired by Buddhism? I think... <laughs> it is hard to answer that question. First of all, that is an area of research that I feel like people should do that I have not done. Oh, cool. Nice. You know, um, it, it would be interesting to do actual scientific research on, you know, how many therapists are, are, are shaped. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, actual qualitative or quantitative research on 
um, you know, how, you know, often, you know, therapists are shaped by um, insurance considerations. I think that, you know, thinking of that state run hospital, uh, again, um, I think that they are thinking about insurance utilization reviews. But, you know, how many therapists are sitting in their private practice offices and thinking to themselves, you know, I may not, my treatment may not get covered if I don't, if I use this particular practice, I think is different. But, you know, it's, it's, it, that topic was a topic that d- definitely came up frequently in my discussions. And it's, and it's certainly one, you know, insurance companies are one of the gatekeepers. They're one of those uh, external authorities that are shaping uh, and concerns about um, insurance and managed health are definitely one of the, um, you know, external authorities that are shaping these uh, different approaches to Buddhist traditions. It's really hard, Um, you know, and so something else I'm noticing in the book is your acknowledgement of some therapists that use techniques that are derived from Buddhism while also having no knowledge of the foundations of things like the Satipatthana Sutta of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So there's like a lack of knowledge on the history of the topic while also using the techniques professionally. Do you think that the surge of mindfulness-based therapy um, and therapists should have to study the history of these techniques in order to fully grasp what it is that they are doing every day? Well, when so uh, I noticed that you used the word have to, uh, which would... Um, which speaks to again a word I used I used a moment ago and that's authority. Mm-hmm. You know the question is are we going you know should they have to and who's going to enforce that? Yeah, there are people that want to do that that want to say there should be certification processes there should be ways to authenticate somebody's use of um, to use that example mindfulness based practices and that somebody in the same way that. You know, I can't call myself. I'm, I'm a mental health counselor. Is is my professional designation, and, that, and you're, you're not able allowed to advertise as a counselor or a social worker or, or a psychologist uh, unless you're licensed, which is which puts you under the auspices and um, under the dictates of both uh, ethical boards. Um, from the discipline and state uh, state run uh, and, and state statutes as well. So there are people that are that do say, you know, if you're going to say that you're a mindfulness based therapist, you need to do this, this and this and that people shouldn't be able to say that they are without without doing this. Um you know, for, from my perspective, I'm going to I'm going to you know draw on another word that you use there, which is history. And what I would say is that um, you know one of my big messages is it's complicated, and the other one is uh, it is worth being aware of our history. It's it's worth being aware of where we come from, and um, so that we can better understand where we stand and what is shaping our choices. And so. You know whether whether that be Buddhist doctrine or the history of the Gestalt psychotherapists who were talking about um, be you know who were saying be here now when they had never heard this word mindfulness before, um, uh, way before uh, mindfulness practices were 
were a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, whether whatever that history is, we we want to. Um, I think the more aware that we can be of our history, uh, whether we're uh, a therapist or a religious study scholar. Uh, the, the, the better, uh, the more intentioned and conscious our choices are going to be about what we think um, should be should be done in therapy or should be written about and so on. Something that I, I'm actually experiencing a great deal of relief listening to some of your answers because you keep using the word the terms it's complicated. And as a teacher in a high school classroom teaching religious studies to American 18 year olds. So many of the times they would ask a question and my answer would be one of two things. It depends or it's complicated. (laughs) And so like, I'm really glad to hear that somebody else is really into that as an answer because, you know, and I'll just, uh, you know, uh, having worked with adolescents for a long time and knowing about adolescent brain development, (laughs) that can be difficult to not, (laughs) to not, you know, to go to the, you know, to, to be working with the abstract or. Yeah, the concrete. But but sorry. Yeah, please. Yeah. They're like, should we put this in the paper or not? And I was like, well, it depends. Yeah. And it drives them crazy. But it's also yeah. a really, really hilarious, uh, you know, motif that springs up throughout the course of a school year. Yes. Um, so you write that there are other religious techniques like and you write and you talked about these a lot. Confession, mesmerism, energy manipulation, exorcism. And all of these are like reconstructed within psychotherapeutic contexts. So. I assume that there are therapists like the Buddhist inspired ones in the book who offer therapy from like Judaism based or Muslim based or Christian based therapy techniques as well. Like, do you know anything about like other um, theologically or religiously inspired therapists in the country that you've communicated with? Yes. So, and, and, you know, part of that came from the, um, the, you know, the PhD program that I, that I went through because um, one of the major tracks of that program where it was people basically getting a PhD in pastoral counseling. And although, um, you know, pastoral counseling as a discipline, pastoral counselors um, want to, their discipline to be open to non-Protestant traditions, um, you know, just as representative uh, I was the first non-Protestant, second non-Protestant student, I believe. Now I'm hesitating, I may be overstating it, but I, I believe I was the second non-Protestant student to go through there. The, the other was a Catholic, and then and and I'm Jewish, so um, you know. So uh, there is a whole discipline of um, of helping discipline of pastoral care and counseling and uh, and chaplaincy, uh, and that work with uh, uh, primarily the majority uh, of them are Protestant uh, traditions. And, you know, again, the very language of that means that if, you know, if you're a Jewish chaplain, um, you, you know, you might think of of that phrase as a contradiction in in terms, you know. Um, So, uh, there is a lot. What's really, what, you know, this is actually a chapter that I'm um, I'm also working on uh, right now that I is adapted from research I did when I was in that program. Is you know uh, looking at whether the phrase Buddhist chaplain is actually a contradiction in in terms, and looking at how some of the same kind of debates that are going on amongst Buddhist communities are, you know, have been going on for, for, for a long time, uh, amongst communities of pastoral care and counselors around the, um, how to 
uh, well, you use the word integrate the psychotherapeutic and the, in most of their cases, the Protestant. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what do you see as being the future of the field that you're, uh, that you're working within? Huh. That's a great question. Some like some future uh, research directions, uh, obviously. Yeah, you know what, what, what I would say, um, and, and, and so I'll speak to the field of um, psychotherapists' interest in Buddhist traditions. I think is what you're asking. Yeah, yeah. But I'll also throw in another one. Um, you know, uh, one thing I wonder is how often the the future of the field will amount to a uh, uh, a phrase that that I just uh, wrote this morning: a reinventing of the wheel, if not the Dharma wheel, uh, is my is my joke on it. Um, because you know the the debates that people are most kind of you know uh, wrestling with today, many of them were being discussed in the 40s through 1940s through 1970s, <laughs> and so. Um, but but those debates are not happening with reference to uh, to those figures. Now I think there are more people who are talking about um, concerns about kind of capitalization, uh, how you know how capital you know how how people that are how capitalists are using uh, particular Buddhist practices. I think more people are talking about that today than when. One of the people I wrote about, Eric Fromm, was writing about that in the um, you know 1970s. Uh, but um, but you know again, it's some of the same arguments kind of uh, uh, here again. So another that's another reason why history could be uh, important to, uh, to look to. I think the thing that I'm thinking about most on this topic is that you know my book um, focuses on the way that people's understandings, the way people define what is and is not religious, how those, how those understandings shaped these, you know, diverse approaches to Buddhist traditions. Uh, and I, you know, one of the major findings that I, the last one that end, that I end the book with is kind of looking at um, a theme that surfaces throughout the book, uh, and that is kind of the values and principles, the, 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 the ethics that shape all of this as well. And more and more what I think about when I think about, you know, when I hear people debating, is this religious or not religious? I think that uh, very often what they're actually debating is, is this good or bad? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, but of course, you know, um, what is good to one person uh, is bad to another. So when somebody says, no, this is not uh, secularized. It's still Buddhist. That person may be saying that to an audience that is, you know, to, to an audience that is concerned that to, that if it was otherwise, it would be bad. But then someone else can hear them saying that and quote them uh, in court to to say this is bad. We're violating the establishment clause of the United States. Um, I, I want to restate that to make sure that that's because as to make sure that that's clear, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you, I would hear therapists um, who were accused of secularizing, or uh, as far as they were concerned, they were being accused of uh, <laughs> of a crime uh, of secularizing Buddhist traditions, and they would say, "No, no, no! Don't, 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 don't be concerned. This is still Buddhist." And let me explain to you how this is still Buddhist. Um, and, and to them, 
secularization would be bad in that context, right? Mm -hmm. But somebody else can say, well, if it's still Buddhist, that is bad. You cannot use that in a public hospital. And they'll take those, that person's words, and, um, and um, this has literally happened, um, you know, argue that what that therapist is doing is bad because they are using a religious practice with people um, that may not want a religious practice in their therapy. And so, again, it's, it's, it's really complicated, but I think that, you know, it's, it's the ethics that, that it's, it's, the, it's the good and the bad of it. That, um, that people have been talking about for a long time and that my argument is we should start being clear this is what we're arguing about. <laughs> like we should be clear that w what we're arguing about is, is ethics here uh, if, we're, if we're participating in that argument. Well, there's been a lot of really fantastic details in this conversation, too, about the importance of informed consent and doing what is best for the people who are coming to therapists for help and also just, you know, responding in kind to what works and what doesn't based on the comfort level of the person coming to see you. So, I mean, it's really great. And yes, it's very complicated. And this book really dives into this fantastic spectrum of what therapists are comfortable doing and how they're going about it. So I think that it's just an interesting read for anybody to uh, to dive into if they're curious about these topics. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more? Like, where would you turn their attention to for uh, for further information? Uh, thanks for that question, because I hope that um, if, if, if listeners are interested, that they, they won't hesitate to, to reach out. And I uh, have now entered the 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 digital age i'm on social media on uh, uh facebook and twitter as dr ira helderman uh all, all one word you know probably the easiest way to find me is irahelderman.com nice i didn't even know that do we follow each other on twitter yet we do okay we do. good 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 good. i forget <laughs> like i just I, i'm all over the place on that so i will uh i'll make sure that um i go and check out all your stuff as well so um Dr. Ira Helderman, this has been a really fascinating conversation about your profession, your new book, and the ethics of psychotherapy and uh, Buddhist-inspired techniques. I'm really grateful to you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fantastic. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>